Hi there, and welcome to the Homestead Education Podcast. Do you have a homestead, farm, or just dream of a rural life? This is a show to help you and your kids grow your own food and grow as a person. I'm your host, Cody Hanner. I'm a homesteader, homeschool mama six, and small town enthusiast. I was raised by an old school rancher and blessed by the grace of God to have been exposed to so much of what rural life has to offer. Join me every week to talk about homesteading, homeschooling, and growth with a homestead education. Hi, and welcome back. I just want to remind you that with the new semester starting, that you can get all of my homestead science books on my website for a new way of teaching agriculture to today's youth and aspiring homesteaders by focusing on small-scale farming and self-sufficiency. If you are a school or co-op and need invoicing, please feel free to reach out to me directly. So this week on the homestead, it's been pretty slow. Um, I think I mentioned to you we had a calf um, on our last episode, so that's our last calf of the season. Um, It's just, you know, colder weather, New Year's, we've just been cutting firewood. Um, I'm working on, I've been spending a lot of time reading, getting ready for opening our homestead store, which um, it's kind of a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today. Uh, And our pigs should be starting to farrow any day now for uh, spring piglets and 4-H pigs. Um, so that's really exciting. So my husband's actually up moving some pigs right now because we have our feed out and pay as you grow pigs, which are the hogs that we sell as whole hogs, half hogs, our retail cuts. We also do as a pay as you grow program, which means that you pay a monthly fee um, until the pig is ready to be butchered. And then it goes off to the butcher and you just pay the butcher. So that's a really like cost effective way to fill your freezer. So a lot of people are loving that. If you live in the PNW, um, feel free and reach out to us at hannerhomestead.com. So uh, another big one this week is the survival course will be done. It's so fun. It's 15 lessons that would be perfect for an extras or for a co-op. Um, there's tons of hands-on activities, additional resources, fun facts, videos of my husband, um, teaching how to do things. You can join the waitlist over at thehomesteadeducation.com forward slash survival. You'll be the first to know when it's available and also be eligible for a discount. So our topic for today is making money on your homestead. So Again, that's how I said, you know, working on um, getting my store ready. I've been doing a lot of reading of regulations to make sure that the things that we've talked about and the things that we want to do, like when I say we, like my husband and I making plans for what we want to have on our homestead and in our store, we have to make sure that we're following all of the laws because we want to do this right. And we're also really close to the Canadian border. So a lot of our product might be going international. So I need to make sure that we are doing everything we're supposed to do now. Um, some of you have been following me for a while and know that like, I'm an avid attender of the rogue food conventions and always trying to find ways to push the limits and make sure that us as farmers are able to sell our food the way really it's our God given right should be able to do. But I'm going to talk about that more later as well. Um, again, like I said, today is all about how to really make some money on your homestead. With um, a lot of people starting to go back to work, I say back to work, there's reduced number of remote jobs compared to where there were during the pandemic. And now people are having to look at going back to work after being home for two, three, four years, and they're not ready to go back. They want to be able to stay home. They want to keep baking their bread, raising their children, homeschooling, and homesteading. And so let's figure out a way to actually make an income off of that. 
Um, now, one thing you have to consider with that is, and I actually hadn't planned on covering this today, but I really think that it's really important to talk about. When you're looking at being able to stay home and make money off of your homestead rather than going back into a job, um, especially an off-farm job, you have to consider that there are a lot of non-monetary incomes that you can consider as part of what your final number is to make it where you can stay home. Now, those non-monetary incomes can be that you're making lunch at home rather than buying it from, you know, the local deli by your office. Um, you can be, you know, doing things like baking bread that's going to save you a lot of money. You're not paying for gas to drive to work. I mean, I know a lot of us lived re live remotely or chose to move remotely during the pandemic. And now suddenly you're looking at having to go back into a job where you have a 45-minute commute every day. Um, just the gas money alone, the childcare, all of those things really add up and you can actually make it where you can stay home and be in a better financial situation than you would be if you went back to work. I mean, my husband and I even discuss this regularly ourselves. He's a disabled vet and I work from home. I own my own business. And there's times that money is tighter than others. I think we all have those days. You know, my homeschool business is seasonal. Our farm is seasonal. And there's months where we go, whew, should I go back to work? And honestly, when we sit down and look at some of those numbers, the answer is always an overwhelming no. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't validity to people working in town. I mean, we have to have that basis. We have to be able to go into town and get gas and have somebody that runs that gas station. I mean, it's just how it is. But there's things like office jobs that so many more of them could be done from home. Um, there's things like grocery stores and um, big box stores that I think as homesteaders, homeschoolers, we're really trying to pull away from a lot of those. Not to say they still don't have their place, but I don't know that we need to have one on every corner when we could really be growing a lot of our food at home. I mean, most grocery stores, no matter how big the size of the town they're in, say that if there was a full shutdown, that they would run out of food in three days. So think about that when you're thinking about how much more you want to provide from your own home and from your community. Um, it's not just about whether or not you can grow all your own pork. Can your neighbor grow all the pork for the community, even if you're purchasing it from them or trading um, while you're able to do something else, you know, such as raise all the eggs? Like, I don't know. Um, there's so many different options when we talk about a local food system, which I feel like could be a whole nother topic. And I've already planned such a wonderful topic for today. So I'm just going to move on on how to make money off your homestead. And you can decide if that's right for you. If you ever have any questions on some of that stuff, always feel free to reach out to me at hello at the homestead education or on either of my social medias, you know, Facebook, the homestead education or Instagram homestead underscore education. And that was just like I said, this just kind of was something I thought of as we started talking and seems so I'm not going further into that topic. I would love to be able to help you with your local food systems or how to do um, household management to be able to stay home with your family. So anyways, another thing that we're seeing with these remote jobs kind of going away, more people going or being faced with going back to work is more people are trying to find ways to make money off of their homesteads. So what you're running into is that used to just be that the flooded markets were people making goat milk soap or um, the people doing cottage foods. 
now we're seeing flooded markets in kind of some of the, I don't even want to say flooded markets because we aren't there yet, but we're seeing more like, you know, direct to consumer um, pork producers, direct to consumer uh, grass fed beef. And those are um, both wonderful, wonderful things that communities have access to. The difference is now that we actually have enough access to it that it isn't um, it isn't like as rare as and exciting anymore. There's becoming more competition. And with that competition, some prices are going down. Some people aren't able to grow as fast as they would like. And I mean, that's not on you. But if you are wanting to start your homestead business, you need to look at some of those things when deciding what type of product you want to grow or raise or produce. Now, on the flip side with that, regardless of what products you're going to be marketing, also look at the products that your neighbors are marketing and don't think of them as, oh yeah, it's really nice to be able to pick up, I don't know, farm fresh eggs every once in a blue moon from my neighbors. Um, because, you know, we have family coming in from out of town and we want them to be able to try farm fresh eggs. Your only farm fresh eggs should come from your neighbor. That should be your grocery shopping trip. And whether you're looking at that from a consumer point of view or from a producer point of view, stop looking at the grocery store as the only place to get our food. That's not normal. It wasn't normal 100 years ago. It was barely normal 50 years ago. Um, We have been fed that that is the normal. So when you go to the farmer's market, when you are lining up where to get your meat for the year, don't even think of the grocery store. Look at ways to provide that out of your local food system and look at how you can fit that niche. Can you feel fill the needs of your entire you know, neighborhood's um, raw milk? Then they wouldn't need to go to the grocery store because their grocery shopping trip would be to your house or to a local meetup that you guys have or something. So consider that off direct to consumer sales from farms um are not no longer old fashioned and they're no longer a niche market they are a legitimate market in our food system and we have to look at it that way um i actually talk about this a lot when i talk about having a commercial homestead because where we're looking at now is it's no longer our small homesteads that are just producing for us nor are we commercial farmers we're commercial homesteads where we're actually saying I am going to produce this product for my community um, for a profit. And you have to look at yourself that way, um, that you are a commercial entity um, following the homestead practices, which is, you know, permaculture, organic, small scale, whichever one you are falling into. Um, so where we end up having an issue when we have um, markets, um, when, when we're starting our own business, there's already a ton of red tape when we're starting our own businesses. But when you add in that most of homestead businesses are agriculture or food products, they are much more highly regulated. Now, even here in Idaho, which is a pretty lax state and kind of viewed as like the model for a liberty state. I mean, that's actually the words that... Um, the de delegate Nick Frieda said to me is that Idaho is modeled as the most liberty-based state. We still have to have all of our meat butchered through a USDA facility if we're going to sell it. 
Now that is a federal law, but if you look into the Prime Act, that we're trying to make that where the states get to decide. So that is a federal thing, but look into it. Um, in Idaho, we have to label our eggs. That's a small regulation, but we still do have to label our eggs to be able to sell them off the farm um, and label them that they haven't been graded and stuff. Um, raw milk. To be able to sell milk, we have to have um, a raw herd exemption. Now, we have much more lax laws in Idaho than a lot of the other um, states have, but it's still, I mean, milk seems like such a basic food to have to have such high regulations for. Um, there's nowhere in Idaho to process chickens. There is not a USDA facility. There is not a custom facility. So then we fall into an exemption that there is out there. Um, and I can do it myself. I can butcher chickens for my own freezer. And with this exemption, I can butcher to sell retail. However, I still have to have an inspected facility to butcher chickens to sell resale. And then they still can't go over state lines because it isn't in a USDA plant. I just, it's so frustrating that there is these exemptions there, but there's still roadblocks that come with all of them. Um, you can do the same thing with rabbits, but I recently found out that even in Idaho, I would have to pay a vet to come to my house to do anti and post-mortem inspections of the rabbits that I am butchering in my facility. And I still wouldn't be able to sell them over state lines because it's not a USDA inspected facility, but really the only difference between my like a uh, food processing approved facility with a vet they're watching it happen is that that vet does not have the USDA stamp in their hand. That is the only difference that would make it where I couldn't sell my retail rabbits over state lines, a stamp. So I'm getting all worked up, but I'm going to keep going down this list because it's really frustrating to me. Some of this really most basic stuff. Um, so to sell nursery items like plants you have to have a permit. Um, to sell honey, you have to have a permit. Uh, you need a sales tax license. In some locations, you need a business license. Oh, and guess what? None of these license come, licenses come from the same regulating office. So I can't like call up my local um, Idaho State Department of Agriculture and say, yes, I'm a farm that would like to sell direct to consumer. I'd like to check off the boxes of the products that I'm going to sell and you can approve me for those. Oh, no. Um, let me just kind of go back real quick. So for the meat, I have to do that through a USDA facility. The eggs, even though they only are like... Um, labeled. If somebody were to get involved, it would be my local county health department. The same with any cottage foods. Um, milk I have to do through the Idaho Department of um, Agriculture. Now to process chickens that falls under the Idaho Department of Agriculture, but I have to get my permit through the Panhandle Health Department, which is my local health department, um, to be able to have my facility labeled as a approved processing facility, which if I was wanting to take my cottage foods any further um, and sell them like online, I would have to have a um, certified kitchen, which is also through my local health department. But that certified kitchen couldn't be the same building where I'm processing my chickens. I'd have to have like an entire sanitation plan and talk about how I'm able to keep those two things separate. Um, now, the rabbits are the same thing. So the nursery items is a different um, permit as well. And I actually can't remember where that's from. But I remember looking at it and going, that's not even the same place. Um, 
sales tax is through the state's um, the uh, secretary of state. And then a business license would go through a county office. So, I mean, literally, if I just want to do, to sell like the most basic cottage food off of my property, I would potentially have to deal with like three or four different regulating offices. And that's only to sell one product. Um, not to mention all of the money I'd have to put into making sure that each of these places meet regulation. Now, I mean, for some of you, you're probably being like, well, but I want my food to come from a clean place. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm just saying that I think that they take it a little too far. And I think it's a little too confusing to that they're purposely trying to push that small scale farmer out. So as a farmer, we're supposed to make a profit from our properties. Well, how are we supposed to make a profit off of our properties, especially when we don't fit into the big model of agriculture or don't want to be a part of it? Um, they don't like the direct to, direct to consumer sales because it cuts out the middleman. Now, who's the middleman? Government, big agriculture. Um, and here's what they don't advertise. And it drives me crazy. There are exemptions for almost everything that I listed before, um, including the right to farm law. Um, in all of my years in food safety and agriculture, I have hated that they do it like backwards um, in when it comes to commercial food sales. So like there's this, you know, the big model. And if you fit into that, you probably went to college for it or you grew up in it and there's all this stuff in place. But as you get smaller, they start cutting you off of your legalities for selling and they don't tell you how to get out of it like how or how to even meet those regulations i'm not even saying get out of it and not follow it they just don't give you anything in plain english so here's the deal you can have your own garden and eat the food out of it you can butcher your own meat and eat it oh by the way did you know that's actually written into the regulations i mean are you kidding me it's written into the regulations that i can kill my own meat and eat it myself Goodness gracious. You can drink your own milk and you can eat your own chicken eggs. You can eat all of your own cooking and canning. You can even feed all these things to your kids. You can feed all these things to your neighbors. You can have them over to your house and feed them these things out of your kitchen. Um, you can give your neighbors a pack of sausage, a dozen eggs from your chickens, a half a gallon of raw milk and a loaf of sourdough bread for them to have for breakfast the next day. And you are all still within your rights. But the minute your neighbor says, whew, this is too much. Let me pay you for this. You just broke the law. Now, yes, I take notes on all of this because there is so much information. So basically, you can be a big ag farmer and fit into the box, which has its own set of regulations. But there are also funds, white paper regulations. White paper means the plain English and government offices in place to help you maintain these regulations. When I worked in commercial ag, it was my job to make sure that the entire commodity plant and the farmers that supplied the commodities met state and federal regulations and sometimes the third party requirements to sell legally. That is a whole person on the payroll just to interpret and implement the laws for farmers. And now I'm pretty sure that 95% of homesteaders out there don't even have someone on payroll, let alone um, 
let alone someone to help interpret food laws so that they can make a few extra dollars or even a full-time income off of their homestead. And I'll let you know right now, the local government agencies that regulate these various food laws aren't always the most helpful either. Um, some of them are unhelpful simply because they're, the states often handle the federal food regulations and then it trickles down to a county or a regional office and they just aren't trained on how to accommodate for small-scale farmers. Other offices, they look down their noses at small-tail farmers and because they aren't bringing the money into their offices or do they just think they're too good for the small-scale farmers. I mean, there's books and um, memoirs and biographies and uh, really famous people out there that will get online and tell you this exact same story. I mean, I'm thinking... Um, specifically um, of Joel Salatin and his book, Folks, This Ain't Normal, and all the trouble that he went through just to get a certain spice blend into his sausage that didn't have MSG in it and everything he had to go through to make that a USDA. USDA approved and all the different offices he had to work with for one product. I've dealt with some of this myself, uh, you know, especially when I started consulting with small farms, um, after working in big ag, um, doing their USDA inspections and stuff. It's just, it's really ridiculous, all the red tape that everybody has to go through to make this happen. Now, some of the county offices simply just don't understand what goes into agricultural practices. I mentioned before that I have to use my county health department in order to have a processing facility for chickens. My county health department also handles WIC, vaccinations, um, some like nutrition education, they cover uh, getting septic permits, they cover all the cottage foods. I mean, and oh, and they cover um, restaurants and making sure that those food processing facilities are up to par. Now, I'm going to say, hey, I want a food processing facility, and they're used to doing restaurants all day long. And they come to my house and they're like, you want to do what? Where? Like, you want to kill a chicken in your a garage or your shop and sell that to somebody like what are you talking about no like we can't do that and I actually I well I haven't I haven't personally had to do this but I've heard stories of where people have to turn around and educate their local departments on what the law is and how they actually do fit into that to be able to butcher a chicken in their shop or garage and then sell it to a consumer I don't think that that should have to be the case especially when we live in rural America which is how so many of us make our incomes. And honestly, it wasn't that long ago. And I say that long ago, it was probably 50 or more years ago. But in the big scheme of things, I could literally have a neighbor come by and be like, oh, we want a chicken for dinner. And I could go out there and kill it and hand it to them. Now, the food safety laws that came into place in 2008 and Again, I'm going way off track from what I have on my notes, so I can't remember all the details of that. But that's when the laws really, really got locked down. They were locked down before, but in 2008, it was a whole new beast. And I mean, when I was in college, like I spent 90% of my time in my food safety classes studying the laws that came in in 2008 and the Code of Federal Regulations, specifically Code of Federal Regulations 110. Now, um. Back to the regulations that need to be followed for commercial homesteads. Now, good luck getting a printout of everything you need to know on how to sell and meet the regulations in plain English. I found one recently and I meant to bring it in here with me when I came to record, but I've been scouring it 
Um, it was written for the state of Idaho. It was written through a uh, private organization that worked with um, the University of Idaho, the state land grant college on how to give farmers guidance on um, direct to consumer sales of their various products. This guide was written in 2008. So, I mean, it hasn't even been updated in, let's see, it's 2024 now. And my brain apparently doesn't want to do math, like 16 years. Do you think that maybe some things have changed in 16 years? And that's the best I can find to be able to make sure I'm following all the laws in Idaho. And most of the regulations and the plain English that was written in there would be a couple of paragraphs and then just links to the actual laws that are definitely not in plain English. And then you have to interpret those them yourself. So they're not out there trying to make this easy for you. And like I said, the places where you can find it, they're not advertising it. Um, another place that I did find was uh, the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund, I think is what it's called. It's farmtoconsumer.org. You can go on there and get links to what the laws are for your state for various different foods. Again, those laws are not going to be in plain English. So let's talk about where you can make some money, um, at least without a lot of red tape. Because um, I don't want to scare you off. I'm just really frustrated with some of the processes right now as I'm getting ready to open our store. And I knew about a lot of them or most of them because this has been something I've worked with my whole life. But now that I've learned more going through the Rogue Food, working with John Moody, um, and just learning what is really happening out there, um, my frustrations get a lot bigger. Because at one point in life, when I was the food safety specialist, I blindly followed those. Now I really enjoy helping farms figure out how to uh, go ahead and follow them because they have to, <laughs> if that makes any sense. So one place where I know is a huge moneymaker is live animal sales. They can be a little tricky to market because there are some laws on how you can market these animals. Um, and you should be aware of some laws about them crossing state lines. Um, not, you know, if you're buying, you know, stock, you need to make sure that you um, have paperwork filled out by your uh, their vet before they leave the farm to cross state lines. Same with you. If you're selling animals that are going to be going across state lines, they should be checked by a vet, especially if they're going to be going to a county or state fair, like I sell pigs a lot, that are going to fairs. Those need to be checked before they go across state lines. I do know of some occasions where I have informed people of this law and they said because they were terminal pigs that they were going to take home feed out on their own farm and butcher. But like I said, um, I am here to teach you what the laws are, what you do with them is um, obviously up to you. So, and I mean, there really is differences. If you have a small homestead where like, you know, we raise 350 um, hogs a year, people are going to notice if we're not following the laws. If you're buying two piglets off me to take home and feed out and butcher in four months, four or five months, and you're butchering them yourself and they're not going to USDA facility or anything like that, the main thing is that they don't want the potential for any diseases to be crossing state lines and getting into the food system. If you run a clean system on a small farm, you know what's going to be going on there. Okay. Again, I'm like jumping all over the place, <laughs> but I just have so much knowledge I want to share with you guys. And sometimes it gets a little um, overwhelming even for me. So just make sure that you're being ethical and 
raising stock can be an excellent moneymaker. Um, you can sell babies, trained or proven animals, meaning like, um, you know, a bull that's already um, sired a whole herd for the year or a whole, you know, crop of uh, calves for a year. Or like when I say trained, like a heifer, um, a milk heifer that already is halter trained and maybe bred ready to go. Those are great moneymakers. If you have an A2A2 bred halter broke heifer, you're looking at probably paying for your feed costs for the year. It's a really great way of doing it. Um, so then you can also sell uh, butcher animals. Now you're like, wait, I thought you said we had to do this through a USDA facility. That is a loophole. You can sell, and it's the biggest loophole in meat sales across the whole US. And it is a known loophole. It's not, you are not breaking any laws. Um, it's how far you push that loophole, but you know, anyways. Um, so I can sell you a live animal. Once I sell you that live animal, you can do whatever you want with it. That is your property. So if you want to take it to a USDA plant to be butchered, great. If you want to go to a custom cut and slaughter, those aren't okay for retail sales. Um, if it's just going in your freezer, great. Um, are you and I going to take that animal out back and I'm going to help you butcher it because you're my neighbor and we've already had this planned? Again, great. But of course, the neighbor butchering his own animal to go into his own freezer is legal according to regulations. So anyways, <laughs> um, and many states um, as part of their um, agricultural um, tax exemptions don't charge taxes on live animals. So like my retail cuts, I do have to charge tax on that. When I sell a live animal to someone, I do not have to charge tax on that. Even if like I sell the animal, the butcher comes to my house, does the slaughter right here and takes that animal. And the person who bought it from me never even lays eyes on that pig. They bought a live animal from me. So great loophole in a couple of different ways there. Another one is eggs. So I'm not going to lie to you and say that you're going to make it rich off of egg sales. And I don't think anyone else will tell you that either. In fact, often you're going to lose money on egg sales. Um, I kind of look at it as a bell curve. The thing is, um, if you can offset the cost of your own personal um, egg consumption, that's a, like a non-monetary income, even if it is like a monetary, like someone pays you $5 for a dozen eggs and you can sell four dozen a month, that's a whole bag of feed. Guess what? You just fed your flock for the month off of four dozen eggs, and I guarantee you that they're producing more than that. So great. If you look into everything else that goes into chickens, you know, with like building coops and stuff like that, you're going to be in the hole big time. But it depends on how you're looking at it, what you've put into this flock. So I kind of look at it as a bell curve. So when we're talking about these little tiny flocks, you have five to 10 chickens, you're selling just enough eggs to maybe cover your feed costs. Maybe, you know, I usually can sell enough to cover both the feed costs of my chickens and of my meat birds. So that's kind of nice because um, they eat a lot. Then there's this place when you reach the top of that bell curve where maybe you have a flock of 50 and you have a really good customer base. You're selling to a local um, like direct to consumer store. Um, it's actually, I think it's another loophole. It's actually kind of like a consignment, um, 
the store isn't selling the eggs, you're selling the eggs, but you leave them there at their store. <laughs> it's kind of one of those uh, fun loopholes. Anyways, um, if you have a really good market like that, and there's some states where you can actually sell those eggs to like a retail store, some states you can't, um, or you have to take a class to be able to or something, you just need to check with your local health department. Um, so yeah, if you're hitting that like, you know, medium to large flock, and you have a really good um, customer base, and you've found a good feed that doesn't cost a whole bunch, but has everything that your chickens need, you might be making a little bit of a profit. I mean, maybe even like a substantial one, like one that you can be like, yeah, we make $500 a month off of our chickens. Great. But then you're going to go over that bell curve and you're going to hit a place where you have so many birds that now that you're going to have to start looking at being a commercial um, aviary, I think is what they're called, or, you know, chicken producer producing facility. And then you have to start looking at all of those regulations. So unless you're willing to invest and become like a large hatchery or something and have all those permits, you're actually going to go back into a place where you're not making money again. Um, let me make sure now where you really can make money is if you are marketing and selling your whole flock. Now you're thinking like, why would I sell my flock? They're making me some money. <laughs> but like with my pigs, I have six different sources of income from my herd of pigs. I sell, um, piglets both as spring feeders and as 4-H pigs. I sell the whole hogs and half hogs. I sell the retail cuts. Um, I sell, uh, roaster pigs, which is like when they're like the hundred, 150 range. Um, and I also sell, uh, stock like, um, purebred gilts and boars for people to start raising their own herd. So that's six different sources of income just out of my pigs. You can do the same thing with your chickens. So you can be selling day old chicks. You could sell pullets. You could sell, um, hens that are already laying. You could be selling fast-growing roosters as meat birds. Um, if they're live, go ahead and sell them. <laughs> um, you can be selling eggs. You can be selling hatching eggs. You could even be selling um, their manure as fertilizer. So, I mean, there's so many different ways that you could be making money. I would think if you were diversifying a um, large a medium to large size flock, you could probably almost have a full-time income for whoever was staying home with that flock. Not that it was a full-time job. That's the beauty of it is it would not be a full-time job. And you could probably make at least a really good part-time income from that flock and have somebody home where you're not paying those child costs and childcare costs and things like that, that we talked about. So another one is selling plant starts. You're going to be starting seeds anyways. Um, so you might as well sell the extras in Idaho. I think I can sell $500 worth of plants annually before I need a permit. And from what I understand, the permits are more about accounting and less about regulating and they're fairly inexpensive. Now I know that probably every homestead blog and podcast that you go to is going to sit here and be like, Oh, start seeds as, um, a source of income, but it really, really is. This is not a fairy tale concept. This is, a way that every year people are buying. And there's more that you can look into with this. Um, but I'm going to get into marketing a little later. So the marketing is really where that diversification comes in. Um, another one is cottage foods. These are foods that aren't time and temperature sensitive. Hard candy, bread, canned high acid foods. Every state has a different list. You just have to Google it. Um, 
if you can find a market to sell these products and you have a quality, low cost supplier, then you're good to go. Um, most of the time, you don't even have to register your cottage foods. But again, check with a county health department. It really depends on your state who regulates this. But anyways, you just can't sell over state lines unless you want to have a commercial kitchen, which again, commercial kitchens, they aren't that hard to accomplish. I mean, if you even have like a, sep a second property on your or like a second home on your property or, you know, a granny unit over your garage or something like that. Um, you can turn a kitchen into a commercial kitchen with very few upgrades. Or if you have a shop that you can like wall off a corner of it or something, there are, you know, you have to just like look into like the septic and the plumbing and ventilation. And usually you can have a commercial kitchen right there. So <clears throat> marketing, this is your big one. This is the exciting one. This is where you start making the money. Um. But this is also where I see most people starting to struggle making money on their homestead. Firstly, it's not just about your end product, especially if your end product is, say, grass-fed beef and you're starting with your first group of yearling heifers. You could be three to four years away from your first income. And with the amount in it takes to invest in this type of operation, I doubt there'd be any profit. Now, I'm not saying that you should avoid a grass-fed beef, beef operation. They are wonderful. We need them. In fact, um, I, our, two of our calves that were born this year are our first two future grass-fed calves to hit the ground. Um, but we didn't invest in them with our own personal funds. Um, we, had, we put our fencing up and that type of thing for our dairy cow, that our dairy cow was by choice. Then from there, we've marketed her milk. Then with the money we've made from that, we have invested more in fencing. Where we paid for the pigs, we started out with um, uh, growing, starting uh, seeds. Then um, from my seed starting profits, I actually went two different ways. I invested in some quail incubation stuff that, I mean, that made me a great profit, like $1,200 a month. I have a whole course on that. Um, and then my other one was we invested in pigs. And then from pigs, we took some of our profits from that and put it into cows. You can actually hear that entire long story on one of my earlier podcasts called How I Saved My Struggling Homestead. But don't feel like you have to have... 20 different endeavors going on in your homestead. That is going to be the fastest way for you to burn out. Like guarantee it. We've gone through burnout ourselves, or we have been like, that was not the right endeavor for us. And we've sent it on their way. Um, pick a few that you're really good at or fit the model for um, you to sell every stage of that product. Um, you know, like I said, if you're just doing one of everything, you're going to burn out. You're not going to be able to market everything. You're not going to have a quality product. Pick a few that work for you, especially if they're like seasonal. You know, like I said, for us, our pigs are all farrowing right now, are getting ready to start farrowing. I am kind of starting my um, seeds right now. But what happens is in for the next... See, they farrow now that I start selling piglets in two months, but I have them staged where I'm selling piglets all the way through June. Well, guess what is also ready between May and June? All of my seed starts. So then I have people coming to the property to buy piglets and they're also buying seeds. 
or seedlings. And then later in the year, that's when I have people starting to buy like whole hogs and stuff um, because they're ready to stock their freezers or they didn't get a 4-H pig or something like that. And a lot of times I have produce I can sell at the same time. So people are able to come onto the property. Um, they're either setting up their whole hog purchase or they're buying retail cuts from us that we already have and they're buying produce and they're able to buy like meal packs at the same time. It's a really great setup and we're um, taking that a lot further. But I'm not... I mean, I don't know if you kind of just heard that, but I'm doing pigs and a garden. Like, that's really it. I mean, we have our cows, we have our chickens. If I'm able to make some money off of them, great, but I'm not focusing on those becoming my big profit ones. My big profits are my pigs and my garden. Um, And they're, they flow together so nice that I'm not having to invest a lot of time and money in our other endeavors. Um, I mean, our chickens, I figured they shut off. We started doing some extra butchering. They shut off for the winter. I don't know. Anyways, we started doing some butchering lately. I'm throwing scrap meat in there. Those things are laying like crazy. It is wonderful. In fact, to the point that I wish the store was open right now because I could be selling eggs like crazy because we have way more than we use. And that's even with uh, six of us in the house right now and eating eggs almost every morning. Now, another one is like, say with plants, like I was saying, you can sell your plant. Um, you can sell your uh, seedlings. You can sell mature plants or produce. You can sell value added products such as zucchini bread. So when I say people come buy their meal packs, they might get some zucchini bread to go with their eggs and sausage and have like a pre-made breakfast. If you're using heirloom seeds, you can sell your seeds and sell the excess before you plant in the spring or when you're planting in the spring. I mean, there are are so many possibilities that you could start from just one pack of heirloom seeds. I know one that I really want to do this year is selling herbs, like live little herb seedling plants. So when people come by like a pork roast, I can sell them a live rosemary plant, um, just like you would get at the grocery store. So really excited about that. Now, your options to kind of navigate some of these laws. Um, you know, if you feel comfortable and you've um, read your local laws or you know someone who's doing it who can help guide you and walk you through it and you have a mentor, go ahead and start whatever endeavor you want. Follow your laws, get your regulations. It's like awesome. Um, I know as homesteaders, we like to skirt those or find loopholes when possible. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, make sure you sell within your limits or your expectation or your exceptions, I mean. Um, so, you know, within your limits, like um, I think Idaho, I can sell a thousand birds um, in my processing facility. Um, I might even be 500 is under the radar. Mm, please don't quote me, but kind of like if you're allowed to sell 500 without a processing facility, make sure you stay under your 500 and then you have no issues. You have nobody coming and bothering you. Um, so another one is you can get help with these laws or income ideas. There are a ton of ideas online. Um, find a mentor, uh, to talk to a neighbor, go to the farmer's market and ask what they do. Um, most people at farmer's markets aren't going to see you as competition. They're going to see you as um, kind of like colleagues um, because people want agriculture to live. They want what they're doing to be um, mainstream. I mean, I have so many friends that are pig producers that I don't see them as competition. If I'm out of pigs, I'm like, hey, call this guy. He's got pigs. Because I want to fill the needs of our customers 
not just fill my pockets because that's not completely what this is about because a happy customer will continue to come back and the other um, pig producers do the same for us. Um, so you can also get my how to start a homestead planning guide. It is only $25 right now. It will walk you through all the steps of planning, starting and scaling your homestead business. Um, if you purchase that and use code podcast, you can also get a one hour coaching session with me for 25 per, or $25 off. So that's essentially getting your guide for free. You just pay for your coaching session. Um, I can give you clarity on your homestead business as well as interpreting and implementing all the hard stuff. Um, I can do homestead business ideas, homestead startups, narrowing down your overwhelm, time management. I even do household management, how to get started with homeschooling. Um, we were converts from a public school system eight years ago before COVID. Um, I help with depredation plans. That is um, how to deal with um, predators with your livestock or your crops. I worked in depredation for a lot before college. Um, I do household and homestead budgeting, um, homemade cost cutting, um, and also I can help extensively with food safety and HACCP plans. Um, I I'm currently also in the process of um, recertifying myself in HACCP, which is hazard analysis and critical control points. That could be very confusing for some people, but what it is, is if you're starting like a processing facility, they're going to want you to have a HACCP plan in place and I can help you do that. I worked for um, in that for many, many years. Um, I have my degree in business management and accounting. I have a bachelor's in agriculture with a focus on animal science. I have 20 years experience of business ingenuity and consulting. I'm the owner of a successful homestead. I run a thriving online business and I have experience in farming, um, food safety, social media, real estate accounting, and so much more. Um, so if you want to pick my brain, I am usually very happy to just answer your questions. If you want a full one hour, sit down, make a plan with me. I can help you work through all of that overwhelm, make a plan. And I provide you with a one sheet business plan with all of your, um, with some budgeting ideas, if that's what you're needing, as well as, um, links to all of your sources. I do all that legwork for you. Um, so I hope that this, episode got you thinking about some things. I hope it helps you build and expand your homestead business. And if you want a little extra help, go ahead and check out those products that I have on my website and I will link those in the show notes. Um, everybody have a great new year. Did you enjoy today's episode? If so, please head over to your favorite podcast player and leave a comment and review. This helps me to know what you're enjoying and helps others find an episode that can help them. Thank you for joining me today at the Homestead Education, and I hope that I have given you something to think about this week. To help others find me, please comment and leave a review on your favorite podcast player. You can also follow me on Facebook at the Homestead Education and Instagram at Homestead underscore education. Do you have questions that you would like answered or just want to say hi? Please email me at hello at the homesteadeducation.com. Until next time, keep growing!